This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And this week, as promised, uh, I guess this is what you call a mailbag episode. We've never had one before. Um, but because so many of you have been talking to us on subtext and texting us, uh, we wanted to answer some of the many great questions you guys have been sending us, especially because we're in a little bit of a pause period in this eternal award season. The SAG Awards are this weekend coming up, so we'll talk about those next week. Nomadland did win the PGA Awards. We can talk about that a little bit, but it's a little quiet. But you guys have so many great questions. And then in the second half of this episode, we'll share an interview that I did with Garrett Bradley, the director of Time, a documentary we have certainly talked about before. It's nominated for uh, the Best Documentary Feature. It's really wonderful. It's really unique um, among the documentary field. So I will talk to Garrett about how that movie was made. Um, But before we dive into your brilliant questions, um, we wanted to do a quick promo for an event that we are holding um, in the run-up to the Oscars. Uh, As you probably guessed, there's not going to be a Vanity Fair Oscar party this year, um, unless, you know, me and Richard and Joanna, like, on Slack, yelling about whoever's presenting counts, which, um, you know, you're all invited to that. (laughs) While eating In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And, like, in full glam. As per tradition. Um, Yes. But we'll be holding an event called Cocktail Hour Live, which will be these virtual events with a ton of celebrities. It starts as April 13th to the 15th. It's going to feature the likes of Serena Williams, Gal Gadot, Michael B. Jordan, Haim, Glenn Close, Laura Dern, John Hamm, Amanda Seyfried, The Lonely Island, and many more people. A portion of the proceeds will go to the Motion Picture and Television Fund to help support COVID-19 relief efforts. Uh, And you can buy tickets now. You can go to VF.com live and buy tickets for some of the various events. Um, I think the one that is uh, nearest and dearest to my heart, and maybe Joanna's as well, is that The Lonely Island, which is uh, Andy Samberg, uh, Yorma Taccone, and Akiva Schaefer will be facing off against Haim in a trivia contest, which I'm really excited for. I spent literally hours yesterday coming up with trivia (laughs) questions. So will they use any of them? Unclear. Um, But yeah, you've got things like Z-Way talking to Shaka King. You've got Michael B. Jordan talking to Serena Williams. You've got Jessica Alba leading a game night of Never Have I Ever. Um, It's just this really fun combination of boldface names and fun ideas, which I think is the spirit of the Oscar party. And, you know, no one really wants to go to a Zoom party these days. But an event like this, I think, where it's virtual, it's from your house, you're encouraged to, like, make yourself a cocktail beforehand. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, we would love for you guys to sign up for that. And it will answer the eternal question, do I know more trivia than Haim? 
I mean, <laughs> no. I've been asking myself that question for years, Richard. So <laughs> you should share your score sheet when it's all over and um, let people know how you did. Okay, so let's jump into our mailbag. Um, before we jump into specific questions, I mean, Joanna and Richard, you, we were just talking before we started recording. This is a ton of great questions, right? Our listeners are geniuses? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Not a bad question among them, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how many of them we'll manage to get to. But uh, if we don't answer your question, that does not mean we do not think it is brilliant. Um, but I thought maybe we should talk with the, a couple of questions we had about the ceremony itself. And as we record this, as far as we know, based on an article in The Hollywood Reporter, um, the producers of the Oscars are having a meeting with the nominees right now to talk about potentially loosening the in-person requirements that they announced. We talked about them last week, how basically they said you can't zoom in, you got to come in person, or you can pre-record something. Um, And I think there has been some pushback against that as COVID cases are still on the rise, even as vaccines roll out. Um, And so maybe we can start with Nikki Mandel, who just said, can you talk about this in-person requirement? How did they not think they would get backlash? What do you guys think? Should they they have expected that? Yes, they probably, (laughs) yes, they should have expected it. But like no one, I mean, so few institutions seem to anticipate backlash, you know, like it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't seem to be a part of the thinking. I kind of liked the idea when it was announced, thinking about it in a vacuum, because it was like, we're all sick of the grainy audio, like, you know, lags and, you know, poor Daniel Kaluuya not being able to like give his speech for a little bit at the Golden Mm -hmm. Globes. Like, you know, it it, it was a nice idea that like everything is going to be in person and communal and a little bit tighter and, and, and neater because of that. In reality, though, of course, it's crazy, especially when, you know, we, we mentioned last week we have older nominees like Yeo Jong Yun and uh, Anthony Hopkins and I'm sure a myriad other people in various categories that like that's high risk for them. Even if they're vaccinated, it's still like who really knows. And so yeah. it makes sense that they're rolling it back. But what, I, what I'll be curious about is if they allow Zoom stuff or some kind of teleconference acceptance speech or something will they send camera crews to those homes in order Mm -hmm. to get a better, you know, production quality? And I think, like, you're the Oscars. You should. You know, like, obviously it's not free. um, But the, you know, networks will pay a ton of money for this. They're probably saving money on some logistics of it. Although the logistics of, like, you know, treating it like a live film set with COVID tests, you know, that's expensive too. Um, But, yeah, if they're going to loosen up those restrictions, if they want to capture the vibe of something, you know, high quality, do it. And shouldn't the director of Contagion know better? (laughs) honestly well they might have been in the same in a similar mindset i was which is like maybe an american-centric sort of whatever mindset of like i assume all the glitterati in america are already vaccinated um Mm. like you said not that a vaccination guarantees you against getting sick or anything like that but uh entirely anyway please don't cancel me for that i i uh i believe in the vaccine (laughs) (laughs) i just want everyone to be really safe um but as we were talking about it more and more last week in terms of international travel and um older nominees i was like yeah you know it's not just like the super famous usuals who all live in LA, who I'm all, I'm pretty sure are already vaccinated. Um, there's other other folks, and and this should be a ceremony that is welcome and friendly to all of those people. So, obviously. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they have given us reason to believe that they're going to do something really fun for this. That like that I think with all of this planning, that like it's going to be interesting, and hopefully they can pull off a way to make it inclusive for everybody. Um, we had um, Helen Murphy ask, uh, do you think it will hurt someone's chances of winning if they don't want to show up in person for whatever reason? And I would think no. I don't think uh, Academy voters are going to know who has chosen to show up in person or not um, as they cast their ballots. But uh, it would be uh, very weird if that did happen. And I guess anything is possible. 
And then to go to another question just about like what this will look like, uh, Julia Morosica just said, what are your wildest dreams for a pandemic Oscars ceremony? Oh, yeah. Um, can I say something? Yeah, please. Uh, not about the pandemic, but I want some sort of pandemic safe um, musical number. Please. Mm-hmm. Maybe everyone mm-hmm. can be in their own individual hamster bubble. I don't know. Like, whatever it is, whatever it takes. <laughs> but, like, I don't know if you guys have watched any of these, like, little concerts that they've been doing in Times Square where everyone is, like, masked to the gills and, like, standing uh, feet apart and singing. It's like, you know, it's it's Broadway performers. And every time I see one, I, like, cry. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I want some sort of real uh, spectacular, spectacular live theater uh, aspect to this. It would make me really happy. I, I randomly found myself last night in kind of a maudlin mood um, listening to the original cast recording of the Jake Gyllenhaal um, Sunday in the Park with George mm-hmm. revival and just being like, I miss theater. So <laughs> I, I, I think that, yes, um, some kind of musical performance is definitely top of the priority list. I was also thinking when um, I read Julia's question. So a lot of the broadcast is being done at Union Station in Los Angeles, which I'm led to believe is the main railway hub for the city of Los Angeles. Yeah, taking so, a train from there. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah. So what if someone perfectly times their speech and just as it ends, they step onto a train and it pulls out of the station? <laughs> so you're asking for some like true theatrical elements to all of this. I want some I want I want like Ocean's 13 Steven Soderbergh, not necessarily, you know. <laughs> High flying bird, Steven Soderbergh, in terms of like <laughs> intricacy. Although that movie, I guess, is pretty intricate. But yeah, I, I, want, I want some went production with value. Thirteen of the oceans options you had here. <laughs> well, they, <laughs> they, they, they fake an earthquake. I guess they do in the first one too, don't they? Anyway, I don't know. There is also like some sort of uh, top of a Vegas skyscraper. Um, yes, uh, uh, spectacular, <laughs> spectacular. Okay, I, I, I hear you. I see why you pick thirteen, and I support it. Yeah, I think my my wildest dream is like maybe I need to think more ambitiously, but I keep thinking about the Grammys and the way that they went through all this effort to have a bunch of people sitting in the audience as people gave their speeches and like having some of that interaction between people and like having like seeing the genuine af- affection for Megan the, the Stallion and like everyone like applauding Beyonce for making history. So I just want moments like that. I want people to give a speech from the heart. I want them to be able to like hug some people, you know, if like the entire cast of Minari wants to bubble together so they can all like get in each other's faces during the ceremony. That would be great. Like so some way to like to make that connection visible which I think the Oscars are so good for like when you get a good Oscar speech you just like feel an entire room vibrating for somebody and I think they have the potential to do that with what they're trying here I'd also really like to hear kind of on the speech front like I'd really love to hear someone I don't know no one in particular but like kind of champion or, or, or kind of issue some sort of advocacy for like theater going and like bringing mm-hmm. back that kind of tradition you know because like I think the on the one hand we still ha- I think there's a question later in this list, like about like what could have been had the pandemic not happened. I still think we got a really robust, good, interesting, diverse group of movies and that ha- they happened to kind of land on various platforms and some things opened in theaters and it, 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 it somehow all worked out OK. But I still I don't think that should be the lesson for like the movie industry of the uh, we you know that they can do it in a pinch. So I hope to see some kind of like let's return, let's all go back to the theaters when it's safe. Um, that kind of messaging I think would be kind of welcome. Yeah, the thing that I think is too late for this year, but um, Kyle Buchanan uh, of the New York Times has suggested a few times on Twitter is that they just they need to release that rule they have about not having movie ads during the Oscars um, because this would be such a great time for Disney to be like, and now Black Widow, and here's the movie you want to see when you're back in theaters, like. 
so many distributors are so skittish about theaters so far that like maybe I mean maybe in the heights would be the thing. Um, but I would just love for the Oscars to be an opportunity to be like, okay, guys, time to go back. Like this is this is the moment. Let's all rally ourselves around seeing you know, Mortal Kombat, like whatever it is in theaters. <laughs> time to rally around Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Mortal Kombat's on April, I think, so it'll be too late for that. We had another another person asked about performances. Uh, Paul Brown just asked if there will be performances from the Best Selling nominees this year. And I think we all hope yes, but we don't know for sure. Uh, and then he said, is this Diane Warren's year to finally win? Um, and I figured maybe we should pivot into some questions about specific races. Uh, Diane Warren, famously perennial nominated, uh, has never won, is nominated this year for a song from The Life Ahead. Not her best song. Uh, she has been nominated for many flat-out masterpieces, and this isn't one of them. But... Uh, I don't know. This could be Diane Warren's year, right? As much as it could be Glenn Close's, you know, like perennial Mm -hmm. nominee, finally. And of course, the grim irony is that it's not like a quote unquote real ceremony. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of years ago, um, back in the old in the old world, um, I went (laughs) to the Middleburg Film Festival in Virginia and I might have talked about it on the podcast, but Diane Warren was receiving kind of like a tribute special honorary award kind of thing, which involved her doing, uh, I don't know, probably hour and a half, two hour talk where she was interviewed and then every i don't know after every few questions she would perform one of her songs from Mm. a movie and they had a a really great singer i believe she was a contestant on idol or the voice or something who performed who sang did most of the singing diane warren did eventually sing at the end of the show um but it was just this really incredible reminder of like how prevalent her voice has been in so many big movies over the course of like 30 years at this point Mm -hmm. um that it's certainly of all of the nominees this year even more than glenn that feels like the most due and i think that would be a really exciting moment if they were able to do it right and if she was there yeah, I mean, she's been nominated 12 times. Like, her contributions to, like, the big movie song are really hard to underestimate. Like, her first four nominations were Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, Because You Loved Me, How Do I Live, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which you think are, like, generic sentences for songs, but you you can hear those songs the minute I say those titles. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm ready for her to have her moment. Okay, so a lot of specific questions about the races uh, that people want to hear more about. Um, Skydell Luttrell basically said, can you dive into the best actress race a little bit more? And for the first year in a long time, it's truly a three or four Ray race with apologies mm-hmm. and due respect to Viola, which I think is actually interesting because I wouldn't count her out. No. Um, I don't know what like I was on the train that Carrie Mulligan would kind of be the one. And I think last week we talked about Emerald Fennel uh, kind of emerging as a big screenplay contender. Um, I, I feel like Fennel. I changed with the wind on this. <laughs> oh, excuse sorry. me, Fennel. I'm sorry. I'm not fancy sorry. enough to say her name right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I keep changing my mind. Are either of you guys firmly decided on this? I think it might depend on seeing what happens with the SAG Award and, and the BAFTA, right? Maybe, even though the BAFTA is trying really hard not to be any kind of like Oscars predictor this year. So I actually think it's a two-way between Carrie Mulligan and Frances McDormand, but I would not never actually count Viola Davis out of the race, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah. Richard, where are you landing? Well, uh, I was talking to a friend about it last night and I just sort of immediately was like, well, if, and of course Carrie's going to win. And then the friend was like, really? But I mean, what about, you know, I think, I think Andrew Day is... I think the most likely spoiler of Carrie's chances. Hmm, not Frances McDormand. No. I mean, she's she's good in the film. She sings beautifully. The film is really, you know, sort of about very relevant topics. Uh, the United States first Billie Holiday. 
I think even though, yes, it's just the Globes and it's just the HFPA, like there is momentum be- from mm-hmm. her win there. She had a great and, speech. That's like, that's the, the thing yep. you need the most at the Globes is to like be awesome when you win. Yeah. So I could see that happening. But uh, correct me. She's not nominated the SAGs, correct? I do not believe so. So that doesn't mean necessarily that she won't win at the Oscars. It just sort of it, it doesn't add to that momentum, you know. But I think that like when you think about speaking of Francis McDormand, when you think about a movie like Three Billboards, which was political, but like an entertainment, it wasn't a lecture. And, and it was I mean, I don't love that movie, but like it, it fit this kind of role in that year's Oscar narrative in mm-hmm. the same in a similar way to what Promising Young Woman do, is doing. Yeah. And I don't know if Promising Woman will win in like Pest Picture or anything, but like McDormand won for that. I could see, I just, I still see Mulligan winning for yeah. Promising a Woman as the, as one of the kind of representatives of the, of the broader film. Yeah. Yeah. You think about uh, McDormand winning for three billboards, the Me Too year and like how much of an atom bomb that was in the, in the award season that like was kind of hard to grapple with at the time. And that was so much of what fueled, you know, she gave her inclusion writer speech. Like she really felt of the moment, like both Francis McDormand and her personality and her role in Hollywood um, and Promising Young Woman, I think has a similar uh, zeitgeist that you were talking about, Richard. But uh, maybe on, uh, maybe Amy Adams wins at the sax and then everything gets turned on its head. Oh my God. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see just a completely, I mean, it would be nice to have a completely, unpredictable lead category that's so yeah. rare you know so well uh speaking of unpredictable maybe we should talk about supporting actor uh, we got a question that like is our favorite thing to worry about from santiago herrero do you think <laughs> daniel kaluuya and lakeith samphill will split votes if so who would emerge as the winner of supporting actor um my method has been to just say that won't happen and not worry about it but maybe it's time to consider the possibilities as you all know, Katie, this is this is uh, something I think about every day. This is what keeps you up at night. <laughs> this is what keeps me up at night. Honestly, um, we already talked about this a little bit, but yeah, I think we, I think we're. I mean, it makes it sound like a Sasha Baron Cohen win is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And it's definitely not. Like you know, uh, that that's not the worst thing that could happen. But I think he is. He feels like the likeliest to emerge should those two other actors split the vote. But I'm hoping that it'll still just be Daniel's Oscar. Um, it's still someone, a friend of mine who like, isn't like dialed in deep into award season, asked me my opinion on the Daniel Lakeith thing last night. So it's, uh, it's out there. It's, it's spreading this whole, like, what the heck is going on uh, with these two actors in this category, uh, question. So yeah. Richard, what do you think? I mean, I would hate if that happened, but I think I've said it like before on the podcast. I I do think if they do split it, Baron Cohen wins. Yeah. I think that is right. They really, um, really, again, they really want him to win something or Borat to win something or whatever. You know, um, I was listening to Blank Check and they were talking about this very thing because they had Joe Reed on for their annual Blankies Awards. And they were talking about like that the Academy probably wanted to in some sort of like deeper subconscious wanted to nominate him for Borat. But like they were like, oh, we can't, can't do that. Can't do that. So they put, you know, yeah. put him in for this. But I just think that that sort of urge is, is <laughs> pretty potent. Yep. I think I'm still going to stick with it's going to happen. And I hopefully next week we're talking about how Daniel Kaluuya won the SAG Award and that only cemented his narrative, which has been my whole theory. But if not, we'll revisit. And at least uh, Jared Leto didn't get nominated. So we can worry less about that. It's true. It's true. It's true. (laughs) Did you guys know that this is a sidebar, but watching the Snyder case, I never saw Suicide Squad. So the Snyder Cut was my first exposure to Jared Leto's Joker, like this thing that I had just like heard people talking about for years. And um, wow, that's that's what it is, huh? I learned a lot. Yeah, welcome. 
Uh, okay, switching to a... Well, actually, no, let's do um, one more acting question. Uh, Shoshana Page basically just says, am I nuts or do all the acting categories besides best actors seem like almost anything can happen this year? There doesn't seem to be anything coalescing around one person in any of the other categories. And um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think Sunday at the SAGs will clarify a lot, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, it and I don't even think it's because of this weird year. And like people saw things at different you know times and it, it was a bit scattered. Yes. But I, I, I almost think that it would be no matter what, given this list of nominees, just because I think it's a strong field of people, even though people are like, oh, who, you know, it's kind of the people I, I sort of read a narrative that it's weak and I disagree with that. I think I also think that in each of the acting categories, you have representatives of very, very, very different films. So it's not like, oh, those performances are similar or those films are similar. You know, I mean, obviously, in some cases, like, or in one, at least there's nominated for the same film. But like, and I think so I think it really is just like what the taste of a certain contingent of the Academy is. And there are enough uh, sort of parallel narratives there that it really it just really depends on like what wins out probably by a nose, um, Mm -hmm. which is exciting. Yeah. Wouldn't we rather it? Be this way, like I think there is a, um, you know, with Chadwick Boseman, I think we all feel this sense of like, you know, relief that we don't have to like worry about one category, and like obviously that's going to be a really well deserved win. But like when it, when it comes to like people who are like all continuing to be in the conversation, we get to like keep having debates about their performances. Like it, it feels like a, a net good for everybody, even if it's maybe more stressful for the people who are nominated. Well, and I think one of, we talked about this really early um, in this award season. This idea of like because because there haven't been these like in-person festival or in-person whatever um, events, I kind of feel like that's where these narratives start getting hardened. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that. um, I think the example I brought up at the time was like this idea that like out of Telluride came this idea that like Renee Zellweger was going to win and that was sort of it. And then it just like didn't get interrogated for this and all of that feels kind of like a fever dream like how did that even happen yeah. no offense to Renee and 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 that performance but it was just sort of like it felt like it was just rubber stamped and then that was it and I don't think those opportunities for people to the the awards season influencers <laughs> to like all, all be grabbing a drink together or whatever and having those conversations and so or it's even just been, to sit yeah. in an audience because like there's yeah. so much of like what does everybody else think like i think about uh, yeah. uh richard lawson at telluride tweeting emma stone's gonna win an oscar for la la land and like richard that's your good taste but also presumably being in an audience full of people being like oh yeah this works it, it really is the oh yeah this works because you can re- you know it's not always true at a film festival because it's varied audiences, but at Telluride in specific, and I think you're 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 smart to bring that up, Joanna, the example of Zellweger. Like at Telluride, there are a ton of Academy voters there. And mm-hmm. it's not just people who are with the films that are in the they just go for fun and for work. Obviously, it's like networking or whatever. But like and and if if a performance vibrates off of those, you know, walls and they're mostly in like not real movie theater. So it's like that the spaces are kind of weird and interesting. And, and if it just has that right frequency, you can really feel it. And yeah, not having any of that experience really. I mean, there was Sundance stuff, sure, but that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been lo- much less hard to, to find the narratives or to have established a kind of beachhead for a narrative like, you know, the Zellweger camp did in what, like Labor Day of that year. 
which is, which is wild and a great accomplishment, but I think it's so interesting. And and this almost, you know, it reminds me of some of the discussions we've been having about like the virtual film festivals and what that means in terms of like who can go to them, um, uh, like that they're more accessible in some way because they're virtual and, and people who can't travel to these things can, can be part of those film festival conversations. And I feel similarly about this year with, with like, without, that machine that's usually in place, and I don't mean to make it sound insidious because there are real thinking, feeling humans behind that machine, but like without that whole, you know, process, it's, I think it's fun to sort of make the opportunity for who else might get in there um, a much bigger question. Like, I, I you know, I don't know. I, I'm going to, I'm going to pull a Katie Rich about Sound of Metal and say, I don't know that like Carrie Mulligan and Promising a Woman would have had the momentum it did if it didn't feel like I don't know it just had it had a real moment online and that almost seemed more important this year I think than anything else and also a moment in person too like it got the rare both this year because it was a Sundance premiere last year right. and so it was the talk of Sundance and then went quiet for a really long time and then had that big resurgence um, which really contributed to its power and but I think you're right that like that's another example of a movie that, like, we're talking about it maybe winning two Oscars. Like, I don't think that would be happening. Well, otherwise. it was going to come out in April. Yeah. You know, it was going to come out, like, two, three months after Sundance. And, like, yeah. um, I, I just, I think that, you know, people would have been beating the drum for for Mulligan throughout the summer and into the fall. And maybe people would have picked up, you know, it it, it certainly happens that something something from the spring can, can hold on um, for basically a full year. Um but yeah, I think that that the, the promising young woman shifting suddenly into a big awards movie because of it, its release timing uh, and the way it was marketed and stuff, I think is one of the bigger narratives about what the pandemic did change for this year's Oscar crop. Yeah, that's right. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists— Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, okay, to move to a different category of us um, to talk about who might win, um, Jackson Clear asks, do you believe the My Octopus Teacher hype for documentary or do you think another documentary will win? Asking as a person who has time, is their favorite movie of 2020? Well, Jack, please listen to our Garrett Bradley interview coming up. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard this My Octopus Teacher hype. What Did I miss something? Did your octopus teacher not tell you about it? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I've just been learning how to count to eight for my octopus teacher as far as I got. <laughs> well, you're so why, yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what um, Jack is referring to. I mean, I'm sure his ear is closer to the ground on that than, than mine is, but like, yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about the documentary stuff. I would love it if time. Uh, which has, you know, won a ton of critics' prizes, and it's great that it got the nomination. I would, I would really love it if it could eke out a win. Uh, I think there are certain things about that film that might prove a little impenetrable for some Academy voters. It's in black and white. It's a lot of home video footage. Like, it's not quite as... I mean, My Octopus Teacher is a handsomely mounted film, you know. But I don't know. Again, time is quite timely uh and um it's something different and uh maybe that's kind of what the academy is looking for this year i mean as i think is somewhat evidenced elsewhere in the nominations my guess would be that the biggest competition with time is crip camp um which is also a netflix film uh, along with my octopus teacher which would i would think would be the biggest interest to uh, octopus teacher and it's the obamas it's the it's another production from higher ground productions um they won was it last year with american factory in the, the Oscars that were both a year ago and 20 years ago. Sure. Um, they have won an Oscar in this category already with that production company. Um, that like That's another like pretty feel-good movie. Time is feel-good in its own way, although also um, kind of like sad and horrifying. Um, Crip Camp would probably be the one I'd put my money on, especially because I thought Dick Johnson was dead was going to win the whole thing, and it didn't even get nominated because the documentary branch is uh, full of curveballs. Um, uh, time, I believe, is Amazon. Yes, Time is Amazon. I'm sorry. Yeah, so my yeah. Octopus Teacher and Crip Camp are Netflix films. Right. Oh, okay. Time sorry, I misheard you. Yeah. Um, so I guess if there, there, there are two Netflix films, I mean, uh, you know, as is ever the question, like, what are they going to put their money behind? You know, they're kind of campaigning against their own title. But, uh, you know, did you see that all the Chicago 7 billboards went up on uh, on Sunset Boulevard up in L.A.? <laughs> Uh, no, on that, like, but that... run of sunset. Uh, yeah, I saw a picture on Twitter the other day. So, Those you know, billboards obviously... are, like, the most useful way to understand, like, what the industry yes. thinks is happening uh, more than any. Because, yeah. like, those billboards don't exist anywhere else in the country. They are there for people to see. Although, I guess, I don't know how what the commutes are like in L.A. these days. But um, they are such a, a useful benchmark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, every time you go to L.A., you're like, oh, there's a billboard for a show I've never heard of before. Like, wow. Well, I also, I mean, I... I dare not tell the public because they might track me down. No, they wouldn't. But uh, but <laughs> or no, nobody cares. But Vanity Fair usually puts me up at a hotel. It's on Sunset. So I usually like have... The standard? I, I, yeah. I usually R.I.P. Yeah, it's closed. Oh, I can't find you there no matter right. what. Oh, no. Never mind. No more, <laughs> no more weird girl in the box in the lobby of the standard. No more of that weird cabbage salad out on the, the pool deck. No more frosé. Okay, sorry. Uh, we should have done a whole standard episode. <laughs> no more techno playing at the pool 24-7. Oh, I well. actually did go slowly insane at the standard once because I stayed there for a week reporting that YouTube feature I wrote a couple yeah, years ago. I remember and that. so I was just in a freezing cold hotel room listening to the low thump of pool music while I interviewed YouTubers over the phone <laughs> that <pool laughs> for <music>. a week. <laughs> that pool Horrible. music was the worst thing. Okay. That, that's going to be your remake of The Shining. Uh, it'll be it'll be great. 
Um, okay, so two more questions that are um, fairly similar. So I read them together. From Kelly Enriquez, basically says, "I have only seen two of the best of the eight best picture nominees. Can you help me provide a, a priority viewing list?" And then Paul Brown says, uh, "Suppose for a moment I am not an Oscar obsessive. Uh, which five movies would you recommend watching that would have the greatest impact come awards night?" Um, and I think you know if we start from the from the best picture lineup, like I think obviously seeing all of the best picture nominees is the way to go. And um, Let's see. I think all of them right now, except for The Father and Judas and the Black Messiah. Oh, no, The Father is now streaming. Um, so it's just Judas and the Black Messiah that is off HBO Max and it's only in theaters now. So they're all very accessible is what I'm trying to say. And someone um, else did ask about Judas's, um, mm-hmm. like, w- when it's going to come back online. I did some yeah. searching. It, there's no date for it right now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I think you're kind of have to go to the theater if you want to see it right now. Yeah. I asked Warner Brothers, um, to see if they'll tell me and if we find out, we'll share it. Oh, great. I would say to both Kelly and Paul, if you're really strapped for time, which, you know, understandably, I think you can, you you don't have to see Mank. (laughs) I'm just going to, I'm going to give you permission. Like you should watch it at some point. I think it's an interesting movie, but I think that it's best chance is probably, well, maybe a technical category, but like in the bigger categories, quote unquote, Cyphered, but like I don't really see that happening. So yeah, uh, I I think if you really are strapped for time and don't want to watch Mank, talk about Mank. It's pretty don't long. Watch Mank. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I mean I really like the Father. We've talked about the Father a lot, but I think that one's also okay for like awards awareness to skip. Like I don't expect it to win anything. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I guess for awards awareness, but I'm just hearing from a lot of people who are finally getting to watch the Father because after you know hearing. You know, Richard talked about it since like last Sundance, two mm-hmm. Sundances ago or whatever. And they like a lot of people anecdotally I've heard are just like loving it. It's just not what they expected. Yeah. I think they expected something kind of like stayed and Oscar I think they expect um, the wife, but it's not, yeah, it's the, it's father. not the wife. The wife, <laughs> the father's not the wife. So the doctor yeah. was the his wife, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I agree with you. I think the father is really wonderful and people deserve to give the, like to give it a chance. Um, because it is so much not what you think it is. But in, if you wanna like have seen the winners. I think that is when you so okay. like Mank and the Father. I think of the best picture lineup are the ones that probably will not win anything. I mean, beyond that, like Sound of Metal is the next underdog, but we all love Sound of Metal, so I don't want to tell someone not to see it. I would say see Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Nomad Land, Promising a Woman, and One Swing One. If you're going to do five, like uh, as um, yeah, as Paul asked. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I think that's a good five. Um, and Chicago Seven. I mean, I also like and would say to see, but I think that is that's a good one to have as a swing. I wonder which two uh, Kelly has seen, but maybe she can text us back and tell us. Um, okay, I put a whole section in our list of questions called Nomadland questions, <laughs> um, which makes sense. It, it won the PGA this past weekend and, and expired uh, Henry Highstand to Texas. Basically, is it over? Nomadland has won basically everything. Um, and I mean, maybe from a starting point, uh, is it over? Do we think Nomadland is still in the same pole position it was? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Same. I do. Um, well, then we're going to talk about some things that could hurt that. Uh, we had a question from Henry Chen. Could you discuss <laughs> in more detail the Nomadland Amazon controversy and whether it could jeopardize its status as the front runner in picture director or cinematography? Um, and I linked for us and for anyone who wants to read it. There's a Vulture article by Wilfred Chan um, that's called "The Problem with Nomad." Well, sorry, what Nomadland gets wrong about gig labor, and writes about the way it treats Amazon and especially compares it to the book that it's based on by Jessica Bruder, in which. There are people who talk really frankly about Amazon, including Linda May, who is one of the real nomads who has a role in the movie. And it is really interesting that they kind of sand the edges off of that. Like they film inside an Amazon warehouse. Fern says it's great money. 
And that's kind of where they leave it. And the and Kloja in interviews has kind of just, you know, said that she wanted the movie not to be political, that like this movie is not about Amazon. And I think that is fair. And I think if she had had dived deeper into Amazon, it would have really overtaken the movie. But I'm also really sympathetic to people who can't get past that because it's like Amazon is such a huge topic, especially right now with the union efforts in Alabama. And I and I'm curious about what an Oscar voter, what what would go through their mind when they look at Nomadland on their ballot and think like, well, I like this movie, but like, is it being irresponsible about this major story about the biggest company in the world, basically? I mean, no offense to its individual members, but as a whole, has the Academy ever indicated that they were, you know, (laughs) the problems of gig labor are top of mind? (laughs) I mean, they're almost all union members, so they've got some kind of labor background. I know. I know. It's true. Uh, I'm being flippant. But um, (laughs) I I think no. I think the short answer is no, it will not affect the Oscar chances of that film. It's also not a huge part of the film. Do you no, know what I mean? It's not. Yeah. And I, th- I I read that Vulture piece when it was first published. And, and I think that uh, Chan makes some great points, you know, and it's something that I kind of struggled with when I was writing a review of it from, you know, virtual Toronto was just like, what kind of responsibility does the movie that kind of worked with Amazon at least to get access to this fulfillment center? Like, what responsibility do they have to like, you know, offer the other side to the critique, whatever, um, rather than letting its good money hang. But I think the good money line is like, for her, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and for a lot of people, it is, especially people who live in places where that has become the sole industry, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that it indicates toward that reality um, and doesn't put the onus of like unpacking this political problem on the people who are just most victimized by it. I think that there are Amazon films nominated at the Oscars. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't I think that that consciousness on that granular level has not reached the Academy. And I think in, in, in the way that will affect No Man Land will it be in its longer lasting legacy. Uh, and we'll see what that is. And so then another question related to Nomadland from Sarah L. What's up with Chloe Zhao getting wiped from Chinese social media by the Chinese government? And will this have any impact for good or ill on her Oscars prospects? Um, I would not begin to try to say I can explain uh, the Chinese government and its attitude toward um, free speech. Um, but I would probably say the same answer as the Amazon question, that like it is complex and somewhat beyond the scope of what the movie is. And therefore, I wouldn't expect it to play too much into the Oscars. Well, the controversy is... The Chinese government saw it right was that she gave an interview and there was a kind of out of context quote where she said, I'm not Chinese. Right. That was the uh-huh. I think that was the inciting. Yeah, she, um, in a December 2020 interview with the Australian news site news.com.au, Zhao was quoted as saying the U.S. is not my country. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think that's a very uh, I mean, I'm sure that the the powers that be. What is who put that movie out? Searchlight? Yes. We're probably like not thrilled because now that movie can't play in China. I don't know if it would have had a big impact there, but like, yeah, I think that is so cordoned off. I mean, China has its own internet, basically. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that that comes to bear on this at all. Yeah, I mean, the bigger question I think is the Eternals, um, the Marvel movie that she is directing that's also slated to come out this year that I think they would very much want to play in China. Um, but again, that's something that like is a question, and it's a, something that I'm sure at Disney they're thinking about a lot, but does feel separate from the way Nomadland will be treated by the Oscars. Yeah. It's really complicated. I'm glad that people are thinking about this because I think it's fascinating that Nomadland is a movie that's about a lot of stuff and that the Amazon thing and the China thing are like not really what the movie is about, but they are kind of the the things that keep coming up around it. I don't know if that means anything good or bad. It's just like interesting that that has been the narrative that's been established on this um, on this really powerful movie. 
Let's do a couple of eligibility and logistical questions that people have, just because we have the power to answer some questions. Um, someone asked if the Snyder Cut will be eligible for next year's Oscars. I asked Warner Brothers, and they never got back to me. I think one of you guys found some more specific information there. Yeah, I, f- I found this. There's a Vulture article that I only knew existed because I saw a lot of people on Twitter be like, why bring this up? But listen, Richard wants to know, uh, Richard Peterson, this person who's wrote into us, if the Snyder Cut is eligible. Um, and the answer is probably no. In this article, this article got a quote from the awards and credits department, uh, which says, in regard to cre- director's cut, a movie is unlikely to qualify again as no more than 10% of footage can be shown prior to its theatrical release. No matter the length of a large portion of the movie was previously distributed more than 10%, it would not be able to enter regardless of the new material. The submitter felt otherwise we would need to investigate the situation and the request. And so what that article goes on to get a little bit more complicated because like there's a new score and like there's a performance by Willem Dafoe that was not in the uh, theatrical release. Amazing performance, by the way. (laughs) And so this, this article says then the film could be qualified for like original score or best supporting actor for Willem Dafoe and Justice League Snyder Cut, but not for, you know, best picture or any of the other things that um, are basically reshaped, if that makes sense. And I think the the crucial thing is that it not only doesn't have a theatrical release, it was released specifically on streaming, but it never had an intended theatrical release. Um, which is the kind of new rule they invented just for this weird year where if someone was planning on putting a movie in theaters, but then they couldn't because of COVID stuff, they're like, okay, then it counts. But the Snyder Cut never had that intention. So that kind of it eliminates it from the from the get. I think there's a complication there, but I could be wrong. Like, I think it did screen somewhere. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But um, what's also true is that Warner Brothers does not seem at all like 0% invested in like... Yes, I would imagine that's the bigger concern, (laughs) especially because their relationship with Zack Snyder seems um, uh, strange. Okay, a couple other small questions. Uh, Someone, a couple of people have asked about the man who sold his skin. And I love the the completists who are trying to watch all the movies. It's nominated for Best International Feature. It is right now only in theaters, or it will be. It's opening in New York April 2nd. It will be in LA and some other theaters April 9th, and then we'll have virtual options soon. So hopefully you'll be able to see it in your house at some point before the Oscars. Um, LW asked, what happens to the films that premiered at Sundance this year? Are they no longer eligible for Oscars next year? And um, no, they will be, unless they open in theaters before February 28th. Um, Festival runs don't count. So like CODA, I think, would be the big one we should look out for. Um, They will all presumably open on a relatively normal schedule. And then something nobody asked, but I have been thinking about ever since Disney announced um, their big release date shuffle. And like Luca is going to be opening uh, early next year. Like we still don't have... They haven't updated the eligibility window for this year or when films will stop being able to qualify without having a theatrical run. And I I think it will be interesting to see when that stops. Um, And especially for kids' movies, my guess is that Disney is betting correctly that people won't take their kids to theaters until their kids can get vaccinated, um, which will be a while. So that's another weird, fuzzy thing that we should look out for this year. Yeah, I mean, I could see the the rules staying a little bit looser and weirder uh, through next year's Oscars. But... At a certain point, they're just going to have to be like, no, we're going back to the regular thing because, yeah. you know, 
But yeah, I don't know. It's and then Disney just announced a couple things are going right to Disney Plus now, right? Yeah, I think Luca. Yeah, and one other one. And um, I guess that would count as like, well, you had an intended theatrical release at some point. Exactly. That would that was my guess for it. And like, yeah. I think I think for animated movies, they might be willing to to be a little bit more expansive about it. I mean, we don't. There's a lot we don't know about what people's movie going behavior is going to be and what will be worth it for studios. So. Um, Hopefully we can continue to be optimistic that like in the Heights can go have a solid theatrical run this summer. Um, that was my contractually, contractually obligated mention in the Heights in this episode. Um, yes. Uh, Anthony Ramos uh, again at the Oscars this year announcing category is all I want. Just, just <laughs> Was he at last him, year's? Yes. He had those like amazing shoes and he like he announced from the uh, from the audience one of the categories because it was supposed to be like the year of in the Heights and it got postponed. So like just bring him back. Anthony, you can wear the same shoes. They were amazing. They were like bedazzled. And uh, <laughs> they Oscars as far as I'm concerned. He did a uh, great job. I forgot about that bizarre some presenters were in the audience thing. <laughs> Better weird. than when they had people give their acceptance speeches in the audience, right? Oh, Christ. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> what an indignity. God. Um, all right. So I have a whole other section called hypotheticals of just kind of people asking us, like, what could have been uh, or what might be in the future? Um Alec Brown asked a question that I think we've we've discussed a version of a few times, just like, how would this year's diverse lineup have been different without the pandemic? You know, he's saying that the pessimist in me is taking over that maybe this year is a COVID fluke and next year we will see a return to form with Spielberg, Wes Anderson and the like. I mean, it, it is in some ways an impossible question to answer. But the fact that this is the weird Oscar year and it's the one with a super diverse lineup is probably not an accident. Um, and I think the future lineups will be the ones to kind of to prove whether or not this is real change or not. Well, so we had another question. I don't think it made it into this document, but it was sort of about this uh, this binary that we talk about a lot when we talk about the Oscar voters, which is the old guard and mm-hmm. the new class sort of thing. Um, the the sort of, uh, I think the way our listener put it, like the green book to parasite whiplash sort of thing. And, and the question they asked was like, does parasite show us that like the new class is now the ruling class of, of the Oscars, or, you know, do we need a couple more uh, results to know the truth of that? But I think what's possible is that even with a, a less COVID disrupted year, the more interesting voting body that takes place at, at the, uh, in the Academy at this point, which was their intention, right? Their intention by, opening the doors um, to a younger, more diverse demographic in the voting body was to, you know, give us a more um, interesting slate of films to talk about. I I think it still would have been an interesting slate this year, maybe not quite as interesting as it is. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think of the big stuff that we know about that just didn't come out, like West Side Story or the, what is it called? The French Dispatch, the Wes Anderson movie. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, those could have been players for sure. Um, but like, maybe not, you know, um, I think we have seen in recent years, like big kind of robust studio oscar stuff, like actually not kind of get traction. I mean, we saw it this year with News of the World. Um, yep. And so I, I don't know that that necessarily would have changed, but I think there's definitely stuff that we didn't even know about and still don't that maybe would have come out, would have played at some festivals, but they decided they decided to keep it, you know, hold it back until, you know, a regular gear. That, that could have shifted things. I also think, you know, we still have like 
an Aaron Sorkin movie nominated for Best Picture. You know, we had like we and we didn't get nominations for like First Cow or Shirley or Never Rarely, yeah. Sometimes Always or a myriad other little movies this year that at one point it thought we thought maybe they could break through because it was a strange year. So mm-hmm. I think some tradition has been held up, some has been shifted, but I think it in some ways I think it has less to do with the COVID year stuff and more just with like, this is what the movies were this year. And also I think um, the George Floyd protests were, you know, played a role in this. It's harder to track because, you know, the protests really peaked in June and these nominations came out in, you know, nine months later or so. But I think the idea of like spotlighting black storytellers, not that the like Oscar nominations did the best job of like highlighting all of the, you know, filmmakers of color who stood out this year. But I think that might have been the bigger attitude shift um, than logistically, like which films were available. Well, and I'm not even sure that's like a conscious Academy decision, more like those are the films that a lot of people that I know were most interested in talking about, because that's what like all the conversations were about this mm-hmm. year. Yeah, it all feeds I mean? back on each other. Yeah. Well, another hypothetical that is um, fun to go into is from Josh Brown. I hope you all play the what best pick nom will get the least number of votes. And what are those voters number two picks game again? Because that seems especially hard this year. Oh, <laughs> and, <laughs> we might have to like keep talking about this week after week because it is really hard to think through. Um, but, you know, if we go through what we were saying or like what are the movies that you can skip, like who's going to put Mank at number one? And then where are those second place votes going to go? Who's going to put the father at number one? And then where are those second place votes going to go? Like, does that seem like a reasonable place to start that that guessing game? Yep. I would think that a father voter would then put Nomadland as number two. Mm. I think a lot of people are going to put Nomadland as number two. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And a Sound of Metal voter would put Minari at number two. That would be my guess. Like the, the like emotional depths yeah. voter mm-hmm. um, if you really want it. But like Nomadland has that too. Which might be why we're all correctly identifying Minari and Nomadland as like the front runners who who capture so many of those elements that people might vote for. And yeah, and I would think that a, someone who put Trial of the Chicago Seven as number one created the show The Newsroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this might be something that we we keep poking our way back through because um, it's a fun one, and I think maybe after the Sag Awards we'll have a little bit more clarity on um, on where some of those votes might go. Hey, did you ever have one of those like moments when like you know Richard's gearing up to make a joke and you know it's going to be good and you can't wait to hear the end of it? Yes. This is why we do podcasts. <laughs> this is like the the pleasure of my week every week. <laughs> Um, so we're going to need to wrap up this mailbag because we're running long. We still have the interview to share. Um, so some of these questions, we're just going to have to get to another time. And it will be our pleasure because, again, these are such great questions. Um, but I want to close with one of, like, there's a, I have a section called Personal Faves, and which obviously we love talking about ourselves. And I just want to start with Peter Carlson. What is your formative Oscar fan moment? Uh, mostly because Joanna picked Titanic, which is mine, too. So let's just talk about Titanic. <laughs> Joanna, why is Titanic your moment? I remember. I was, like, so I was... I don't know. I was in high school and um, I just remember it was my earliest like film snob moment because I was at like some sort of Oscar viewing slumber party as a high schooler. I don't know why. <laughs> On like a Sunday night? Jeez. And it was, yeah, it was a bunch of girls. We were watching the Oscars and they were all rooting for Titanic and I was rooting for LA Confidential because mm-hmm. I was a little weirdo. It's a Monday night, and, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's right. They used to be on Mondays. Yeah. And uh, and then like Titanic won and, ever, and all the girls in the room were like squealing and jumping up and down for joy. And I, you know, and James, James Cameron's all king of the world. And I was like, harumph in the corner. And that I think is my <laughs> origin story so yes 
Uh, yeah, I was the I was that girl at the slumber party. Although I was mm-hmm. not at a slumber party, but Titan. I was old enough to be into like reading Entertainment Weekly, but not old enough to be too snobby for Titanic. It was like a real sweet spot. And I'd also had like a Titanic fixation when I was in like second grade and like had like Robert Ballard's book about like discovering mm, the Titanic yes. wreck. Yeah, so yeah. I was like really Same. in deep even before the movie came out. Um, so yeah, Titanic was just like everything to me. It's like someone else asked like, what's the first uh, Oscar movie you saw in theaters? It was definitely Titanic for me. Like I didn't see The English Patient for years later. I mean, I didn't have, a, I did not regain respect for Titanic until I met you, Kitty Rich. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> Because the Titanic was such like a lingering relic of my like teenage snobbery yeah. uh, that I looked down my nose at. Um, and I know a lot of people like, you know, around my age or whatever who still feel similarly about it. And I have to be like, no, you guys, Titanic's actually a great movie. And I know this because Katie Rich has told me a thousand times. That might be the biggest dividing line between the like the <laughs> super old millennials who are slightly Gen X cusp and just the regular old millennials. Like you are the Gen X cusp millennial and I am I the am. regular old millennial. We're pretty crusty. So, you know. <laughs> That uh, wait, year Rich- was yeah. I was going to say that year was the first year that I'd seen every Best Picture nominee in the theaters. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but because of that, because we I'd seen them all with my parents, my mom let us stay up till the end of the Oscars, which normally I wouldn't be able to do. I would have to like get the newspaper in the morning, you know, from the stoop mm-hmm. and find out which one the big categories. This was in 1942, I think. Um, <laughs> but when I came home from my piano lesson. My mother had put out this huge spread of food that were all themed. And we had like oh a Playmobil God. fishing boat that she'd put some construction paper around to make it look sort of like the Titanic. Oh, um, my God. It was a really lovely moment. Um, I still bring it up to my mom and she's very proud. Um, Can we so have yeah. her on the show and like make yeah, a theme menu for this year's yeah. Oscars? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I just think that it just it, that was the sweet spot because it was the rare time when the biggest movie in the world was also... Uh, the biggest Oscar winner and you know and that that happens once in a blue moon but like that was such an ascendant thing and uh, nothing has been like it since. I think for people slightly younger than us, the Lord of the Rings functioned in a similar way. Like the, the Return of the King year, um, I think for a lot of people was just like, I love this movie and the Oscars love this movie. And it, it radicalizes you and then you're stuck watching the Oscars for the rest of your life and listening to this podcast, hopefully. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. So now we're going to share my conversation with Garrett Bradley. Uh, She is the director of Time. Uh, The origin of this movie is really fascinating. It's a feature documentary that she started making thinking it was a short about this woman, Fox Rich, who is uh, kind of a a prison, uh, you know, resource for people whose families are in prison and because her husband was in prison for over 20 years. Um, And then at the end of shooting with Fox Rich, um, she just handed over this bag of old tapes that she had made of her entire life. And that is really what makes up the entirety of Time and what makes it such an extraordinary film. Um, So I talked to Garrett Bradley about about that process of making it and then also kind of like putting this movie out in the world getting the trust of her subject and the way that she does it's so extraordinary and the way that she makes films you know she's an artist she one of her previous films plays as an art installation in museums and kind of how she toes that line between uh commercial documentary filmmaking and art films and um how she gets away with it which is something that is really rare these days so let's listen to my interview with garrett bradley
Since we are, um, this is a podcast that's devoted to award season in one form or another, I think it's fun to just talk to people about their experiences going through the Oscars process. And the Oscars haven't happened yet. But what was your uh, experience of getting the nomination? How did that all uh, come down for you? Being nominated was a huge surprise, to be honest with you. Really? And it's Yeah, because you, you know, you don't, I don't have any experience. This is my first feature-length documentary. It's my first time working with a major distributor. Um, there's a lot, every part of this process has been a learning curve, you know, for all of us. And it's funny because I, I know people who are, who manifest by just saying these things will happen. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and that's what allows it to happen. I think I'm somebody who might be a little bit more crippled by by doubt. And so I never assume anything. And so it really is incredible, you know? I mean, my family, I think I think hearing my family's reaction, you know, like who who aren't necessarily engaged with what I do or you know, knowing that they that it meant something to them also was mm-hmm. was really special. I mean, the visibility of this film compared to what you've done before, you know, there's the, the Oscars part of it, there's being at Sundance and all of that. Like it's I think you said in a previous interview that you really push back against the idea that like features are inherently like bigger or more important than shorts. But I, I assume that the difference in a spotlight that gets put on your work has been noteworthy to you. Has that changed the way that you feel about that line between shorts and features in terms of how to get your work out there? Well, it's kind of a completely different system. You know, from what I can tell, it seems like shorts, um, you know, they might go to festivals and and folks may push for them to get awards um, and then have them seen on a platform, which isn't different from a feature length film. But I think the way in which those same systems encourage the public to engage with the work is a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that that's changing. You know, I do think that that um, especially when we see this intersection now between short filmmaking and journalism, I think that it has mm-hmm. sort of opened up this door for, for broader accessibility. But um, but there is still, I'm not sure my opinion has changed. I think that they, they there is a different value system related to them, and I'm, I'm sure that that's connected to a market and traditional ideas of, of how films are funded and how they're supposed to function in the world for us, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I wanted to, I mean, the funding of a film can be complicated and, you know, not all details get to be shared. But in terms of, um, you know, the line between a documentary and an art film, and I think in another interview you said, like, that line isn't really that important to you. But for financing, it really can be, like, the idea of how you're going to sell something. So how do you work with the people who get stressed about that and kind of sell them on the way you want to approach this and um, and get to make the films that you want to make in that way? Yeah, I mean, I... I know this sounds really hippy dippy, but I always just speak from the heart, you know? Like I all I can do is be as honest and transparent about why I want to do something and what I what I feel I'm capable of, you know, and mm-hmm. what it can and what it could potentially do for something bigger than myself and bigger even than the project itself, but what can it actually offer to the world in that moment. And if that doesn't resonate, then that's okay. You know what I mean? It's probably good to just know from the beginning, cool, we're not on the same page or, or great, mm-hmm. we're on the same page and we want to do it together. I think, and I think a lot about um, just, you know, young people and, you know, when I was 
in film school and I was, you know, there's a lot of focus of like when you make it, it when you when you make a feature, that's that's really making it, you know, and I think that then what mm-hmm. starts to happen is you you start to second guess yourself and you start to focus on what already exists that's out there and how can you fit into the thing that's already out there. And it's really important, I think, to, to believe in yourself and to and to read the news and to be engaged in the world outside of your own craft so that you can be t- saying things that are in response to and mirroring something that is much larger. And that's where true partnership comes in. And that's where I think this question of like fundraising and all of that, it's all in the same pot, ideally. Is there a key for you in hanging on to that internal compass for yourself of knowing that like just because this person thinks that's what making it is, that's not what it is for me and and returning to know that the way you want to approach the work is is worthwhile and, and how you push through with it? Like, how do you stick to your guns in that way? I think it boils down to confidence, you know, and I think in order to achieve anything in life, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of patience. Um, but then it also is you believing in yourself. You can't achieve anything in the world if you don't believe in yourself and you can't wait for other people to believe in you. So I think how does one build confidence in themselves? It's going to look different for everybody. For me, that means like getting enough rest, being able to take walks, staying engaged with the world and not, not isolating myself in my work, you know, but you know, my community, my friends who are, who are musicians and painters and, and sculptors and writers, you know, um, who, are, who are journalists, you know, I mean, just really staying in a strong relationship with my community. That gives mm-hmm. me confidence for what I'm interested in, why I'm interested in it, what's wrong about it, what could be, what could be better about it, you know, all those things. Since time took off at Sundance and has gotten this level of attention, has that been more of a challenge for you? Because I, I can only imagine this kind of like whirling Hollywood vortex surrounding you when a movie like that blows up in that way. So do you is, do those grounding efforts take more work to make sure you, you keep your head where it needs to be? I think I think that being able to live in a computer for the past year <laughs> has made that a little bit easier, you know. Um, um, but, you know, I try to the Hollywood vortex, I mean, it's still pretty abstract to me. And I, I like to try to think of it as, you know, yes, there's this machine that exists, but at the end of the day, we're all artists, you know, like we're all people who are trying to create something with our talent, with our, with our craft. And I think in moments that I've felt overwhelmed or intimidated, you know, to be more honest about about all of that, I just go back to the work and I go back to to the creative headspace and I and that's how I connect with people. Is that something that making, I don't know if what you're working on now is a documentary, but you have made documentaries, the, the, that idea of connecting with reality is making documentaries make that easier or more possible where you're just like really putting yourself headlong into the quote unquote real world? I think so, but I think it also surpasses, you know, I mean, documentary filmmaking in my mind, doesn't function too differently from scripted filmmaking, you know, or even commercials to a certain extent, where there's an element of aspiration, there's an element of reflecting and mirroring the things that matter to us globally, you know? And we're all, I think the medium is essentially, it is, uh, it's an opportunity for us to better understand ourselves as individuals and as communities. Um, Even, you know, even in commercials, like I just finished a commercial and like, a lot of the conversation around like casting, for instance, or how the camera was going to work was very much rooted in like, how do we keep this quote unquote authentic, you know? Mm. And there's a cynical Mm -hmm. version of how one could 
talk about that and respond to that, you know, in relationship to documentary filmmaking. But it is ultimately, in my mind, just a reflection of how much we actually want to be in reality. To ask specifically about time, I was looking back at it this morning, and I had kind of forgotten how much of um, Fox Search's voiceover is part of it. You know, you've got these, like, very raw videos she's made of herself, and then you kind of uh, observing her as she goes about her work, and then she's she's narrating the films in some way. And you see her uh, directing her own car commercial, basically, and, like, I get that she would, she would kind of know how to handle herself in front of a microphone in that way. But is there an element of directing for that, too? Like, you guys had this, this element of trust, so how did those voiceovers work for you as a director? Well, I mean, I think that the voiceover for me, first of all, she has an incredible voice, <laughs> you know, <It> really does. <laughs> and and she's she's an incredible storyteller. You know, the way in which Fox just speaks is like poetry, you know, and the beauty of making films is that you're, you can pull all these different elements that are sonic, that are visual, you know, they're musical to tell a story, you know, and so to me, it felt like really important to include all of those elements to help um, speak to love, you know, and to speak to unification. I liken it to, to being just an author, you know, you, you have a bunch of mm. research and you have all these elements and then you, you are building the story and you're using all of those elements to help build something that is vivid and real for everyone who reads it, you know? Yeah. And you know that, like, the difference between when she's in those, like, speaking moments and when she's saying over it, like, it all feels like so much of a part. Like, it, the, her authenticity throughout is, is so unmistakable that it, it, it carries through every element of it that you have in there. Mm, yeah. I mean, obviously, the level of trust that you built with her for making this film was, like, essential to, you know, making it, making the film you needed to. But she has such a strong voice and such a strong sense of herself. So when you're making it, like... I don't know if she has like approval over certain moments or if there's a sense that you feel of like knowing that you had done right by her. Like, how do you keep her authorship voice in mind in some way, if you even thought of it that way? Yeah, I mean, I I think that as a as a filmmaker, the collaboration is in the intention. Why are we making this? Why do we want to make this? And once that has clearly established, it's my job then to articulate it, you know? Um, and to and to build that and to make that happen. And every step of the way, there has to be a level of transparency, which is, for instance, you know, it's really important that we be at Remington's white coat ceremony. Um, mm -hmm. Why is it important? Being able to answer that question. Or it's really important that we're in the back of the car. You know, why is that important? Being able to answer that question. All of those things, mm -hmm. are, that's my job, you know. And I think that working with strong people, strong personalities, does not mean that I'm relinquishing my control as a filmmaker. It means that I'm able to celebrate and to honor the reality of that person, you know? And I think that mm -hmm. the, the questioning that I found that sort of comes into play of like, well, who's in control and who isn't in control is a really exciting question because it challenges actually our expectations around power and control within the context of documentary filmmaking. It challenges, I think, these ideas of what the truth is and what vulnerability is. We, we tend to think as viewers that somebody's weakness or that their vulnerability is somehow more true than their strength, you know? Mm. And I, I, as a filmmaker, am invested in people's strength. I'm invested in the way in which they see themselves in the world. And I lean into that. And it doesn't take away from anything at all as far as my own vision. When did you show her the film for the first time? 
right before we were going to go to Sundance. So we gave ourselves, um, I think a week, (laughs) you know, um, I, I, I never ever make anything without getting the blessing of the folks that are in the film. Right. Um, and it's a fine line because you want to give enough time for people to say, I'm completely uncomfortable with this or that, but you're also kind of taking a chance of hoping that there aren't huge things that you can't achieve Mm -hmm. in a a short period Mm -hmm. of time, you know, but I, I, you know, that's not, that's not something I've always been super, super worried about because I think as long as you are again in communication with people about why you're making the choices, you know, that you're making Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, you know, there aren't huge surprises. The one thing that Fox did say that I'll never forget when she watched it was, and we were sitting there, I was holding her hand and Robert was next to her and, um, I remember she just said, I can't believe how much of me there is in this. Mm. <laughs> and I just was like, you are, the, you are the sun by which everything revolves. You are the center of this. But the, Who did she think it was going to be about? Well, exactly. But, you know, she, I, think that, I think in her mind, she cannot be separated from the collective of her family and vice versa. Mm-hmm. She is a part mm-hmm. of a group and a community, a family. Um, and that's how she sees things. And I think that that's also beautiful. Yeah, I think it was your um, your interview with Amy Taubin uh, from Sundance where you kind of talked about how exceptional she is as a person and how to get that across, that strength that you were talking about while also making her a person, you know, who uh, we can relate to in some way without kind of falling into like the relatability trap. So I mean, I feel like I feel it while I'm watching the film, but I don't. What do you do to make her feel exceptional but human at the same time? I let her be her. I let her be herself, you know. Um, and the thing is, is that this is, this is the story of 2.3 million people. And this yeah. is, this film hopefully is just the beginning of making sure that that is widely known and understood. You know, I think that we're at a place right now where people are finally starting to bring the conversation around incarceration into public view, into a mainstream conversation, but it's still very much rooted in a place of politics, a place of history, Mm -hmm. a place of statistics. And we don't have um, an equal balance of that up against the human experience, up against the effects of those facts, right? And so I hope, I mean, there's so many stories that can be told from this perspective. And I think that finding that balance was was just seeing it, you know? I think seeing something is also believing it. It's also like, it also, historically speaking, has been the thing that has also held systems accountable when nothing else will, you know? The the idea of the personal story as opposed to all the statistics. Being able to actually see the effects of something, you know? Like when Mm -hmm. Vietnam was happening, you know, people actually could see on their TV what what the effects were of war on human beings. And it actually mm-hmm. caused them to go out on the street and protest. You know, when Emmett Till's mother decided to have that casket open, that was so people could see what was happening from a personal point of view. This past summer, all of those protests were, were, were saying, again, technology and image making are going to hold these systems accountable. What that has helped me to understand really, really clearly is the absence of image making around incarceration, the absence of mm-hmm. visibility around what 2.3 million families actually means and looks like. And so I know I'm sort of answering your question in this roundabout way, but it's like, how do we show this balance? It's to simply show it. It's to simply show mm-hmm. the strength and the beauty and the resilience of families. 
Well, you talk about the the visibility and the imagery around incarceration, and the thing you really distinctly don't include is you know anything inside Angola and anything of you know the the prison experience. And is that because it felt? I mean, I imagine there's a logistical component to that too. But I, I also imagine that's because that is the thing we are overloaded with. Like we've we've had prison TV dramas, we haven't had this specific drama. Yeah, which I'm really suspicious of. I was talking to somebody. He's a teenager and he was watching one of these TV shows and he was telling me about it. And I was like, I wonder how they had access into that prison because prisons are mm. are strategically impossible to get into. They, The warden might say, okay, this is what you can shoot. This is what you can't shoot, right? And I'll give you an example. So Robert was at Angola for 21 years and Angola was once several different plantations that were then consolidated into a single plantation and nicknamed after the people who were brought from the country of Angola to be on that land. And it was then turned into a prison and it's 18,000 acres of property. And our drone, not only would the, were they able to shut off radar so that our drone couldn't see anything, right? Uh, oh. We could capture the land, but then we had to go across the river to another state line, fly our drone, drone over, and we were only able to get a fraction of that 18,000 acres of land. So it is impossible almost to capture what's going on. And that is by design, because if people see what's happening, they will be angry <laughs> and they will want yeah. to, uh, they will ask for change. They will demand for change. So in many cases, the family is the only evidence of what's happening. It made me think there's this um, podcast called In the Dark that did a whole season on Curtis Flowers in Mississippi. I don't know if you listened to this, but um, they go into really big detail about the logistics of talking to him from prison. And like they he's his voice is in the show and then it is. And I just it was eye opening for me in many of the same ways that this was too. of just being like, oh, the process of having to drive to the prison and how you get to see the person. And you talked about how you got set up with Fox Rich while working on a different project um, and you didn't really know anything about the process of families for incarcerated people. Like, do you remember what your preconceptions of, of this were beforehand? Like, do you remember how, how little you knew maybe before you met Fox Rich? Yeah, I mean, it was very abstract in my mind. I knew that incarceration was, was an extension of slavery in our country. But if you were to ask me, well, what does that actually mean and look like? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you. And when so many people are affected by incarceration, it's kind of astounding to think how little it is that we know, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I, I just can't emphasize enough that a family staying together over the course of 21 years and, and love being the thing that kept them together is it's both exceptional, but it's also very, very common, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that we, you know, some of us don't know just because it doesn't appear to be in immediate proximity. And maybe we have friends who have incarcerated family members, but they don't talk about it, right? There's a real stigma around it. And so it's not something that is, it's sort of hiding in plain view, you know? Um, and not only did that, and I, and I came to this issue, again, from a human connection that I had with Vox and with the family, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and these larger, critical, super important issues come out of that human connection. Yeah. I have a kind of a, a broader question to maybe close things out on, but watching Fox's videos, I mean, this is obvious treasure trove. And I think they're so special because they're from an era without the iPhone and when we, we were not capturing ourselves to the extent that we are. But you see how she kind of had, she had the knack that so many people have now of like teaching her kids how to record her. Like, do you think that we are going to think of these videos as less special as time goes on, that we'll have so many of them? Or like, is the 
the work of archiving that stuff going to get harder or more interesting? Has that made have Fox's archives made you think about how we capture the extensive amount of video that we have of our own lives now? Well, I've been thinking about archive for a while, just on on other projects and how they function yeah. and what they what they mean for us. I mean, I think unfortunately, I don't even know if we'll have an opportunity to think about what we're capturing now because I'm, I don't think we'll have it. I think that they exist mm. on our phone, and then we get new phones, and maybe some photos filter over, maybe some videos do, but none of us, I think, fully understand the cloud or how to download or archive things or put them on hard drives. Hard drives, you know will last, what, a year, two years, maybe? Mm-hmm. So we're kind of, I think, living in a fantasy right now that the things that we're capturing are for the future. I think they're more for the present moment. And I think uh, Kodak and Fuji and, and film, we know, which has you know a shelf life of 500 years, actual celluloid, mm-hmm. still reigns over all of it. Are you better with your own personal archives then? Like, do you have your videos backed up? No, no, no I'm, I'm, I'm If anything, I'm talking to myself right now. <laughs> Some archivist is going to make a movie about your stuff in 100 years and be shaking their fists at what you didn't keep. Um, well, Garrett, thank you for taking the time to talk to me and turning your back away from this beautiful view behind you. Um, I um, And congratulations on the movie. I, I hope that the success only continues and I can only imagine that it will. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate you taking the time. That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week talking about the SAG Awards and who knows what else. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe Rufus. You can also text us at Subtext where we got so many of your great questions. Go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7215. We love to hear from you. Tell your friends. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the 2022 Oscar winner for Best International Feature goes to... No more weird girl in the box in the lobby. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.